There's some good general physiological theories that link female-specific hormones to nutritional requirements per se. There's a market out there that loves buying products regardless of their efficacy. And so that's why we see more and more information, um, whether it's good or bad information, linking sex-specific hormones and nutritional requirements. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We are also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. Uh, It's the stuff you might talk about in your training session or after a hard workout at the uh, cafe. And what we aim to do is break it down and um, we invite a guest expert or researcher and then we follow that up with an um, athlete to add their perspective and, and give some practical tips on it. So, Alan, how are you going? I'm going all right, Steph. A bit frantic today. First time teaching back on campus at the uni for over two years for me um, because uh, at the times when we weren't in lockdown over the last couple of years, I just happened to not be teaching at those times. And then the times that I was doing a lot of teaching, we were in lockdown. So Mm -hmm. yeah, first time back running a a workshop um, over on campus, which was a bit of a bizarre feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'd completely forgotten about was that when you have your two-hour allocation for your workshop and there's 10 minutes left, all of a sudden all the students for the workshop that's behind you start milling out the door and getting impatient and you can see them all waiting and then you're sort of glancing over to see whether there's a, like the disgruntled academic going, get out of the room, I need to get in here and set up for my session. And um, <laughs> Thankfully, I think it was only the students by the time we finished up, but uh, yeah, I've had a few run-ins with uh, some old crusty okay. academics in the past, so uh, I got, got out of there on time I think at the end. We, we had like 10 minutes left and I'm just like, yeah. I've got like 10 minutes worth of stuff, but I can't take the 10 minutes. So I'm like handing the mic around to people going, give us your answer. Yep, fine, next one. Yep, fine, next <laughs> one. And just like, and fine, and rush them out the door at the end. Yep. So, um, and it was the first year. So it's literally their first day of classes ever oh. at the uni. But uh, yep. yes, I have to be a bit more organized last time. I forgot how uh, strict yeah. on time you have to be when it's on campus. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You get like 20 minutes then taken off for the, well, the students do, because often, you know, like you never start right one time, right? You've Mm. always got to let them have 10 minutes or so. And then, yeah, so they get 20 minutes off. Mm, Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, it's a bit rusty with the old uh, teaching in person, but we'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. 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 And is that, um, that's just if you're doing workshops and those types of things, lectures are still generally online for now? Yeah, yeah, most of the lectures yeah. are online, sometimes live like via yeah. Zoom, sometimes uh, pre-recorded, yeah. uh, depending yeah. on what it is. Um, the unit I'm running at the moment is actually I'm caretaking it for someone who's on maternity leave, and so they're pre-recorded a lot of the lectures themselves. So, um, yeah, it's just yeah. sort of curating that and then running the workshops and answering the questions and doing the assessments. Mm. Mm, how about you? 
not so much teaching, but I guess you're bogged down with research stuff at the moment. Yeah, like it's all happening. I'm doing, I am doing some teaching, like the shoots and workshops and um, uh, yeah, like assessments. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, study. So that's gone crazy because, as you know, like when participants want to come in. Um, you kind of need to grab them when you can so they don't mm. get injured or they don't run away. Um, Makes you sound like you're tracking them down and torturing them, Steph, and running away from you. <laughs> don't want them to get bloody well injured, so I'm just like, get them. Because, <laughs> you know, they're excited and they want to do all these races, so mm. I've got to get them in while I can. And uh, uh, and, and, and just then, a reminder, yeah. this study, these studies have had ethics approval. We're yeah. not injuring people. <laughs> not injuring, No. Yeah, and uh, and then I've had to collect, you know, some extra data from my study. Uh, oh, so it's, yeah, it's like I don't know where I am actually right now, but um, anyway, uh, <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been hectic but fun. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I am very excited about today's episode, Al. Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. Uh, episode 32A today, so a new topic with our Part A episode. And our question is, do nutrition needs of female athletes change across the menstrual cycle? And we're very lucky to have Associate mm-hmm. Professor Claire Minahan from Griffith University up in Queensland mm-hmm. to join us to help answer this question. Yeah, yep, can't wait. Um, but first of all, social media shout-outs um, and questions. So, uh, yeah, Instagram? Yeah, we've had a couple of questions on Instagram. Uh, we had Sylvia who contacted us um, from our discussion with Ben Desbro a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about younger athletes and he mentioned um, some work that had been done by an Australian dietitian, Reed Real, and some other collaborators looking at how you work out the energy needs of adolescent athletes and that the equations to do that are actually different to the standard ones that we use with adults uh, and was interested in the link for that paper. So um, I think we'll, we'll send that to you, Sylvia. We might post it on social media as well as a bit of a follow-up to Ben's episode for those of you who might be interested. Uh, obviously, it's a bit hard to post on Instagram because the nature of Instagram, uh, but we might put it up on Twitter uh, and people can find it there at The Long Munch. Um, we also had Jono who just uh, contacted us recently actually and he was saying he's a bit late to the podcast but he was interested in a couple of episodes one we were talking about uh, a few weeks ago balancing fueling for training versus body fat loss and and the body composition side of things and how do you sort of balance the two and we talked about that sort of periodization of, of carbohydrates so having your carbohydrate in the lead up to those key training sessions and reducing it down a bit where it's it's not so important uh, we also talked about the fact that you know if you're doing that you really want to be putting in that fuel before and during the training session so in the lead up to those sessions rather than afterwards and that you might you know back it off if the next day was a rest day after training and then he said you know that we also talked in another podcast about sort of refueling the body uh, with carbohydrate to help prevent injuries um, we're talking about flavored milk and things like that i think it might have been the episode with isabella russo around recovery but i'm not 100 percent sure so are you saying you know do we need slightly higher level of carbs after a long run um and i think the answer to that is it probably depends on how much carbohydrate you can eat within the amount of energy that you you need so if you've got very high energy needs you could probably eat lots of carbs before during and after training and it doesn't really matter whereas if you've got fairly restrictive energy needs for whatever reason maybe your training load isn't that big got a name of body fat loss at the same time 
then you do need to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, strategic with how you use your carbohydrate. And in that case, obviously, if the training session is an important one from a quality point of view or it's just really long, then I'd be probably prioritizing that uh, carbohydrate before the session. If you can fit some in afterwards, by all means. Um, but if you're really sort of walking that tightrope, uh, which can happen sometimes, and we spoke to Neil Vanderplug about that, then I'd probably prioritize the before rather than the after. Yep. As always, Steph, um, we do get other feedback, and that generally comes from you going about your daily business and people <laughs> getting in touch with you, uh, whether it's walking down the street, going for a run with the dog, walking into a shoe shop. Uh, what has it been this week? <laughs> Uh, this week is just, um, yeah, a keen ultra marathoner uh, that I know. And, yeah, um, she was, I think, recently made aware of our podcast out and said she's really enjoying it um, and she's catching up on all the, the backlog of, of episodes. And, um, yeah, so that was lovely positive feedback. Yeah, and, and just a reminder, I guess, that we do have that backlog of episodes now because mm. sometimes we get questions that come through on social media and we think, well, actually, we did that in an episode, you know, six months ago, 12 months ago, something like that. Mm. Um, often when you're pulling it up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or something like that, you only see, you know, the most recent 10 or so episodes and you have to click the load more to scroll down and see the rest of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's quite a significant number down there now um, and people don't realise they're there. So, yeah, if, you, if you're relatively new to the podcast, welcome, first of all, but um, have a look back through that back catalogue because there might be something there that answers a really um, burning question that you've got in your mind uh, and it might just tick that box in terms of helping you answer that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, just a reminder that you can find us on your social media outlets, so Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at the Long Munch and you can uh, listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms. Yep. So it's that time again, Steph. In our A episodes, we always do this where mm-hmm. there's something that's a little bit frustrating, something that gets under our skin, something that you know you see on social media or you talk to people and, and they mention it and you just kind of well, hopefully you don't roll your eyes to their face. If it's on a computer, <laughs> you've got to get away with that a little bit more. Um, but you sort of oh, no, not again. Yeah. What's it for you this week, Steph? I can well, sense the frustration in your voice. <laughs> yeah, it's my frustration. I think it's other people's frustrations as well, other coaches and, and stuff that, that have a chat to me and um, other support staff. It's, I guess, yeah, just um, people that are that follow the fad without, I guess, questioning things or, or looking into things deeper and, yeah, looking into, I guess, where where's the research, where's the evidence at and does this actually make sense and is it practical? So, you know, our, our question today is just a, an example of that and Claire will answer it quite well and, and gives us a nice, succinct um, answer. So I don't know, I don't think I'll give it away um, right at the start, but the main thing is, yeah, people just um, following these fads without questioning, where is that evidence coming from? What is that level of evidence? And we've gone through that already, Al, and had a really good podcast and chat with um, uh, Tim Crow. Mm, back in episode 6A, I think it was. Yep. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah. Just in terms of 
um, yeah, when we do or we're not too sure on things, where can we look at and how should we think about things? And also um, a relatively recent chat we had with Trent as well, you know, like when people, if people are getting confused about all the wearables and stuff like that that's out there and data monitoring, um, Trent gave some really good, um, uh, you know, tips on how to think about these things as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's probably two parts to this that, that I'll add into the mix now and we might talk a bit about them after our chat with Claire as well. One is I think, you know, sometimes we get those sort of myths and misconceptions come when people present information that, that sounds good. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. like it's got a legitimate scientific basis behind it and sometimes, it you know, there's, there's grains of truth in that. And in fact, mm. there pretty much always is. Mm. And it's what um, you know, Louise Burke, who we had on our very first ever podcast episode, would call sciencey. You know, it mm-hmm. sounds sciencey. So it sounds like it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's um, well supported by science, but it's not necessarily the case. And I think the final thing with that, which kind of speaks to that a little bit as well, is oftentimes, I guess, it's looking more broadly rather than looking at one book or one article or one person's point of view to see, well, do, do most of, or, you know, the majority of experts in the field hold that same view? Um, and it's very tempting to look at one person who presents the alternative view and go, oh, that sounds really cool and that's awesome. But just because it sounds cool and awesome doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the right way. Yeah. And it's nice when people challenge the dogma, quote unquote, but we just need to be a little bit cautious of that, I guess, because sometimes that can lead us down a rabbit hole, which isn't necessarily where we want to go or, or that helpful to us in the long term. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's understandable that people get confused, particularly when it's not in the area of expertise. Mm. Um, So then that's where, you know, we'd encourage people to then seek out um, a professional in that particular area, um, perhaps to help guide them. Yep, absolutely. Now, sounding a bit too calm for my liking there, Steph. I know I was calm. I didn't think, yeah, I'll get a few hits from that too, I'm sure. But that said, I've spoken to you off air about this topic plenty of times and even when we wanted to bring this topic to the podcast you weren't calm then so let's just project the calm or the lack of calm that was there maybe a month or two ago when we were discussing this topic and insert that here and just everyone can picture Steph not being calm right now yeah 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 (laughs) all right so today's episode our yeah, episode 32A, as we said, do nutrition needs of female athletes change across the menstrual cycle? And our guest today is Associate Professor Claire Minahan. And I might hand it over to you, Steph, to do the intro about Claire before we get into the interview. Yeah, easy. And I'm glad you've said the surname so I don't have to do that again. Um, Claire is an Associate Professor and Accredited Exercise Physiologist at Griffith University. Uh, in sport physiology and um, the performance centre on the Gold Coast and um, Griffith Uni as we discussed Al have had a lot of um, very good athletes come come out from there um, and perform very well in the recent Olympics if I'm correct. Yeah yeah well, Claire will mention that at the end of the interview but they're also overrepresented in this podcast. Mm. We've had Ben Desbro from there. That's We've had Chris true. Irwin from there. Oh. Uh, and Danielle McCartney's not there now, but was uh, did her PhD there as well. Mm. And now um, Claire. Yeah. 
So Claire is um, very much a sought-after expert um, when it comes to considering or considerations for the female athlete. She's a founding member of the Australian Institute of Sports Female Performance and Health Initiative. Um, And Claire also consults to the Queensland Academy of Sport, Swimming Australia, the Gold Coast Suns AFL Football Club, and has worked with many, many Olympic um, world and national level athletes. And now we both actually were lucky enough to um, see and, and hear um, Claire give a, a exceptional presentation on female athletes at the Sports Dietitians Australia Conference in October last year. And um, we knew instantly that um, she's the person we want to have on the podcast answering this this very question. Mm, I remember sending you a text actually while the presentation was still going, I think, going, we need her on the podcast. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, saying how nice and practical and clear she she is. And she's definitely yeah. that in this, in this podcast. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, without further ado, why don't we get stuck into it? Yep, let's do it. Claire Monahan, welcome to The Long Munch. Great to be here, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. You are from Melbourne. So what made you escape to the Gold Coast? Uh, seems like a seems like an obvious answer. Weather obviously <laughs> um, comes to mind. I've actually been here for over 20 years now, so yeah. sort of hard to remember, but I think it was uh, an opportunity to, to change universities um, and they had a really attractive um, program up here at Griffith. So uh, came here 22, 23 years ago and haven't left. Wow. Yep. Um, and what? So what was the? What were you studying at the time? Was that um, exercise physiology or? Yeah, back then it was called human movement, uh, yes. and it was quite different. I do recall in first year uni, I was doing things like folk dancing, aerobics, oh. swimming, volleyball, <laughs> basketball. <laughs> a little bit different now. Chemistry, <laughs> physics, maths. Yep. Um, incredibly enjoyable, uh, yep. and then yeah, stuck around and uh, went on to do my honours degree and, and PhD in sports science. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And and do you have a particular background in, in sport yourself? It's been a while since I've um, played competitive sport, I have to say, um, mm-hmm. but uh, pretty well played every sport under the sun as a kid. Um, my two main sports, I guess, were uh, multi-events, so heptathlon and uh, field hockey. Yep, yeah, awesome, yeah. Um, but no, no more at the moment. I spend most of my time uh, walking the dog, going for a bit of a shuffle, and uh, in the gym, I guess. Um, but yeah, nothing competitive. Too many calf injuries. Getting old, as they say. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, enjoy being active. That's for sure. I'll do a bit of water skiing and things uh-huh. like that. Yeah, awesome. And um, I was listening to, to some podcasts um, recently um, that you're on and I, I did hear on one of them that uh, your great-grandfather used to be Australia's strongest man. So um, does this mean that we also need to watch out for you? <laughs> That's a great pick-up, actually. It's um, definitely a true story. Uh, his name was Clarence Weber. Uh, and uh, he's definitely Australia's strongest man. Um, I do enjoy the gym. It's definitely a strength of mine, pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) Don't do too well on the endurance activities. Um, It's uh, a great heritable trait to have. Yeah, 
Yep, yep. So in other words, we do need to watch out for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what got you interested in researching in the area of exercise physiology, I guess, generally, and, um, and then I guess the needs of females more specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I guess when I was younger, I was uh, so interested in sport and, and basically because I enjoyed it so much. Um, and I recall an excursion in year nine, uh, my school took me down to the Victorian Institute of Sport and I saw a, a guy who was working in a tracksuit and there was an athlete running on the treadmill and I thought that is the job for me. Um, so, so that's how I sort of got interested in exercise science and sports science. Um, and then I guess being female, you want to understand uh, how you can be the best athlete you can be, which meant uh, I had to focus on female-specific physiology. Uh, and so that's how I started to look at gender differences in uh, exercise physiology and then got really more interested in things that were specific to, to women and females, um, and that led me sort of down the path of menstrual cycle and oral contraception. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, our, our question today is, do nutrition needs of female athletes change across the, the menstrual cycle? Um, and there's been a, a lot written and, and said about this, particularly online and in books and on podcasts, um, and many of it can be kind of, you know, contra, contradictory and, and conflicting. Um, can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, it's um, frustrating more than anything. Mm. Um, there's some good general physiological theories that link female-specific hormones to nutritional requirements per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why there's information out there. The reason it's contradictory and conflicting is because there's been few controlled scientific studies uh, indicating some of these theories or practically showing these theories. Um, and of those scientific studies, few of them are of high enough quality to, for us to come to a consensus, um, you know, to understand the link between female-specific hormones and nutritional requirements. Mm. I guess... Um, There's a market out there that loves buying products regardless of their efficacy. Uh, And so that's why we see more and more information, um, whether it's good or bad information. We see it in magazines. um, We're seeing it in journal publications um, that suggest for um, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, linking sex-specific hormones and nutritional requirements. It's yep. an interesting one. Like I know like my area of research is in, in sodium for athletes and it's another area where there's been sort of big gaps in our scientific knowledge. And I think whenever there's a gap, mm-hmm. someone is going to come and fill it. You know, if there's not science, they'll fill it with whatever they want kind of thing. And I suspect it sounds like from what you're saying, Claire, that that's probably a similar situation here. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Um, and there's a market to buy products, mm-hmm. uh, whatever they are. So uh, you're right. If it's not science filling those gaps, then it's someone else filling the gaps with a product to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, women make up about 50% of, of the population and participate in, in sport just as males do. But there does appear to be a serious lack of, I guess, exercise and sports nutrition research done in females. 
Can you tell us some of the reasons of, of why that is the case? Why do we have so much um, info on males and, and, um, and not so much in females? Yeah, I guess there's a few reasons that come to mind. Um, first of all, there's few senior female sport dietitian researchers. Um, there's probably uh, for every one female uh, sport dietitian researcher, there's three men. Um, and so just human nature is to want to find out more about people like yourself. Mm. Um, and so there's uh, a lack of interest in finding out more about female athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's absolutely less funding for uh, women in sport as compared to men. And yeah. so your uh, male elite athletes would have more research performed on them due to funding Mm -hmm. and then probably um, it's a little bit more difficult to do robust research on female athletes Mm -hmm. given um, uh, you know physiology of of women um, that changes across the menstrual cycle Um, and so it becomes quite difficult to control studies so there's a few sort of competing factors why that's true and we're definitely trying to rectify that Um, But it's going to take funding. It's going to take both male and female researchers to to have an interest in female athletes um, and try to understand how we can control research to account for changes in uh, hormones across the menstrual cycle. And, yeah, so we're, we're concentrating, I guess, our conversation um, in the area of the menstrual cycle and its effect on the physiology and metabolism of, of female athletes. But before we get stuck into, into that, um, are you able to give us some definitions um, just so we're all on the same page? Uh, so first off, what is actually considered a normal menstrual cycle? Um and, and and what is an actual menstrual period? Yeah, okay. I guess the important um, word there is normal. Normal doesn't mm. mean common, um, yeah. but there is a definition of normal menstrual cycle. And I guess the menstrual cycle, that phrase has been used to describe both the ovarian cycle and the uterine cycle. So it collectively describes those two, the, the ovarian cycle governing the preparation of Um, ovaries and the release of eggs and the uterine cycle governs the preparation and maintenance of the uterine lining and those two cycles occur concurrently and together are called the menstrual cycle essentially Um, and they're characterized by repeating patterns of fluctuating hormones and the two hormones we'll probably talk about are estrogen and progesterone Mm -hmm. Um, so normal menstrual cycle um, can be characterized by Uh, about a 21 to 35 day cycle so anything within that range can be considered normal Mm -hmm. on average about 28 days is a menstrual cycle and um, the duration of the menstrual period and I'll get to that in a second is about Mm -hmm. four to seven days Um, and a menstrual flow so the fluid amount is about 30 to 60 mils so that sort of constitutes a normal menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. Um, A female will get a menstrual period um, if the egg isn't fertilised and pregnancy implantation does not occur. And a menstrual period is the degeneration and shedding of the uterine lining. So 
we can characterize a normal menstrual cycle. It doesn't mean that it's uh, uh, occurring in every single female. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, that uh, female athletes in particular need to um, be able to understand and be able to um, identify if their own menstrual cycle is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that leads to the next question, which you've already sort of said, do, do, do most females experience a normal cycle um, and is this any different for, you know, kind of between runners, cyclists and triathletes? Yeah, I guess uh, it's not that easy to know if um, most women are experiencing a normal menstrual cycle because menstrual cycles aren't always tracked or, mm-hmm. or they're not confirmed with measurements of um, circulating hormone levels via blood sampling, mm-hmm. um, nor do we regularly confirm ovulation unless we're trying to get pregnant and even that mm-hmm. doesn't occur very often. Um, but there is some evidence to suggest that up to 25% of the general population experience some form of menstrual disturb- disturbance at any one time. Um, and, and then endurance runners per se, endurance cyclists and triathletes um, can be even at a greater risk of menstrual disturbance um, and one of the most uh, common disturbances is called amenorrhea which is the absence of three consecutive menstrual periods and that's largely due to low energy availability in those athletes and I'm sure we'll discuss that a little bit more. Mm, yep yep um, and can you define the three distinct phases of the menstrual cycle, including, I guess, that the profiles of the, the two key female sex hormones? Yeah, so the two key female sex hormones I mentioned were estrogen and progesterone. Mm-hmm. I guess traditionally we have defined three distinct phases of the menstrual cycle and they've been um, named the follicular phase, ovulation and the luteal phase. But more recently, um, Kirsty Elliott's sale published uh, a manuscript that found it useful to describe the menstrual cycle in four phases and that better represents the four distinct hormonal profiles of the menstrual cycle. So phase one um, is indicated by the onset of uh, bleeding, so that's a menstrual period, that is Mm -hmm. day one and phase one. That's when oestrogen and progesterone levels or concentrations are really low. Phase two is the late follicular phase. Um, So we're now looking at sort of between day seven and 14. And what we're looking at is progesterone remaining low and oestrogen rising quite rapidly and and reaching a peak concentration. That uh, is before, immediately before ovulation. Phase three um, is ovulation per se and we have this really rapid decrease in estrogen concentration with uh, a gradual increase in progesterone and then phase four is the mid luteal phase uh, and that has elevated estrogen and progesterone so it is useful to to look at the menstrual cycle now in four phases um, just because of that distinct hormonal profile one, yeah. one of the things that you often see uh, online, Claire, is people just talking about almost two phases, like a high hormone phase and a low hormone phase. How does that sort of fit into the four that you just described there? Yeah, so the, the low hormone phase is um, the f- early follicular phase, and that's uh, the, the, the menstrual period. So you know if, you're, if you've got your period, it's very likely that your estrogen and your progesterone are low. 
And then the high hormone phase usually refers to the mid-luteal phase, and that's when both estrogen and progesterone are elevated. So it's a really um, gross way of looking at the menstrual cycle, low hormone and high hormone, and in between that um, is phase two and three, and that's really when estrogen and progesterone are doing two very different things. So a little bit more complex to understand, but also much more difficult to measure. Yep. Yeah, no, that makes sense because you sort of think high hormone or low hormone, but there's times where one's high and one's low. So which one is it? So yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. Yep. And, um, and what's meant by menstrual dysfunction and um, amenorrhea? I can never say that word correctly. Yeah, so. Amenorrhea, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, dysfunction means that it's not working yeah. and that it's not normal, I guess. Yeah. Um, and menstrual dysfunction can present in a lot of different forms. Um, and that might mean heavy bleeding. It might mean irregular bleeding. It might mean no bleeding. It might mean painful periods. Um, and that can be a, a result of numerous causes. Um, first and foremost, it might be, mean that you're pregnant. Um, <laughs> may mean that you have low energy availability. Um, but uh, we also need to be really aware that menstrual dysfunction can be a result um, of something a little bit more sinister like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, so essentially, if uh, you are or an athlete or a female is experiencing menstrual dysfunction, that is they aren't experiencing a normal menstrual cycle, they should really go and see a medical practitioner about that. Amenorrhea um, actually has a definition um, and it's uh, it's in three consecutive menstrual cycles you aren't um you aren't having a menstrual period essentially yep. so it's the missing of, of menstrual period and uh, there are a few reasons for that uh, in athletes it's generally because of low energy availability but it can be because of a few other things as well particularly in um, sort of strength and power athletes um it can be because of amenorrhea but it also possibly could be because of polycystic ovary syndrome. And um, and I guess now in terms of the menstrual cycle, what um, effect does it have on exercise performance? Because there seems to be a lot of kind of confusing information out there and, you know, people are uh, changing their training and, um, you know, training to the menstrual cycle. Um, is that, do you think that's warranted at the moment? Where's the research at? Yeah, it's a question I get asked heaps. All the time. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I would absolutely love to be able to give an answer. Um, okay, the, we're ready for it. Yeah, that was that was really <laughs> crystal clear, but I'm not going to be able to, unfortunately. Um, really helpful was a... A, a recent review in 2021, I think, um, that looked at the effect of menstrual cycle on performance. And when I say menstrual cycle, I mean naturally occurring fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone. Mm -hmm. Does that affect performance? And the consensus is that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in short. Mm -hmm. So um, that there's no real... Um, reason to think that one phase of a menstrual cycle over the other phase you're going to get better or worse performances in either sprint events strength events or endurance events however 
um, there's a few diamonds in the rough that we that we need to pay attention to um, because there are some nice theories, as I said earlier, linking female-specific sex hormones with physiology. Mm. Um, the problem with the consensus at the moment is that much of that work is based on poor quality studies. Mm. And so we don't have the number of high-quality studies to make irrefutable comments on menstrual cycle phase and performance. Mm. You did mention something about um, considering whether at certain times during an athlete's phase of training could, you know, being in a certain menstrual cycle phase change the way they adapt to training. There's some um, emerging evidence, I guess, around phase-based resistance training, indicating that adaptation might be optimal when the frequency of training is increased during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle compared to the luteal phase. Um, and that could be because of the effect of uh, estrogen, that anabolic hormone um, in, the, in the late follicular phase, or it could be because there's a positive perception of athletes during that phase two performance. We just completed a study and asked elite athletes in Australia if they had the choice, when would they like to perform? And a, a large proportion of them said in the second week of their menstrual cycle. So they're perceiving that their best performances would be in the second week of their menstrual cycle. And that, of course, is when estrogen's high and progesterone is low. Mm -hmm. But if I had to answer your question in one word, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but stay tuned for maybe some Absolutely. more research. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also what I found interesting when I was listening to one of your podcasts is um, whether at certain times during an athlete's phase of training could being in menstrual cycle disturbance actually positively impact on exercise performance? Yeah, I guess um, I, I guess the premise of, of those thoughts mm. is that uh, menstrual cycle disturbance or one kind of menstrual cycle disturbance is amenorrhea, so that is the loss of, of mm. um, menstrual periods. Now, that means that an athlete's probably in low energy availability mm. if they're an endurance athlete. And that would occur if an athlete is uh, perhaps trying to lose body fat, body weight for, uh, you know, to, to get into a race uh, weight kind of situation. I would never condone that amenorrhea uh, has a positive effect on performance. Um, yeah. It can result in poor performance, it can result in uh, injury, um, but it does occur um, because athletes do go into low energy availability when they're, um, you know, leading up to a major event or a major performance. So I think there is a really fine balance between uh, why an athlete's going into amenorrhea and what they're trying to achieve. It certainly shouldn't be the uh, outcome that you're looking for it's probably just a result of body weight management uh, leading into an event and can elite level athletes 
have a regular menstrual cycle or is it almost kind of the expected norm that they're going to have a disturbed cycle? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a bit of a myth actually. I think um, every elite athlete should uh, strive to have a regular menstrual cycle mm-hmm. um, and that should be something that they work on. It's It's just one of those tools in your toolkit that can flag underlying health issues um and you lose your menstrual period if your body is trying to save energy for other um processes in your body or if something's wrong with your reproductive cycle so there's a reason that you lose your menstrual period um, and i think athletes should pay particular attention to it yeah so if they lose it they should go and get it checked Oh, absolutely. Yep. Without doubt. it's um, If they stay in that state, it's most likely to result in poor performance yeah. and or injury. Yeah, because I do think that myth is still very much out there, like mm. where run, runners particularly just think it, it's it's normal. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. common. It's not normal. No. Yeah. Yep. And any advice for coaches working with female athletes in relation to, you know, training programming in relation to the athlete's menstrual cycle? There's nothing specific that I can suggest. Mm. Um, Periodisation, recovery uh, are still primary uh, attributes of a well-rounded training program that may or may not align to an athlete's menstrual cycle. What I would encourage is that both the athlete and the coach have conversations around the menstrual cycle. Um, How do athletes, uh, how do they feel that they're performing throughout their menstrual cycle? So one piece of advice would be to track menstrual cycle and track symptoms for quite a long period of time. Um, It's very individualised. There are athletes that are not affected by their menstrual cycle. There are athletes that have a pretty hard time, um, you know, in the week leading up to their menstrual period or during the menstrual period. So I think it needs to be individualised and the coach and the athlete should work on that together by tracking uh, both menstrual cycle phase and symptoms that go along with it. Awesome. Yeah. Those symptoms should be positive and negative. They don't always have to be, I, you know, I feel tired, I have pain, I have a headache. Mm. Um, we also not, need to look at the, the positive symptoms of menstrual cycle. I feel strong. I feel like I have a lot of energy. Mm. Absolutely. All right, well, let's get into more the nutrition-specific side of things now, Claire, and um, looking at whether changes across the menstrual cycle affect, I guess, the metabolism of, of athletes in terms of, their use or their need for, you know, carbohydrate versus fat as a fuel, for example, or whether it changes things in terms of their physiological thresholds. So if you're trying to do, you know, threshold efforts in training, whether that changes things or even things like their buffering capacity, if they're doing those sort of shorter, higher intensity events, does menstrual cycle, as far as we know, have impacts on on any of those? Yeah, pretty um, complex question to answer, (laughs) but I guess um, there's sort of three things we're looking at. Um, we want to know if the changes in female sex hormones affect energy production via a specific energy system Um, and then does that change fuel usage so are you using more carbohydrate or more fat um, despite the workload remaining the same Mm. so for a runner you're running at 14 
kilometres per hour in one phase of the menstrual cycle are using more fat as compared to another phase. Mm-hmm. And then another question would be, does the menstrual cycle phase change the capacity of the energy system? So you were talking about buffering capacity in one phase of the menstrual cycle. Are you better able to deal with, um, you know, high levels of lactate accumulation or, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, short answer. <laughs> we like short I guess, yeah i guess i guess that the, there are th- theoretical effects of of these sex steroids um on the pathways of metabolism again and that's why people are interested in them because based on theory and what we know from animal studies there should be an effect of sex hormones on metabolism the thing is it's so difficult for us to measure don't forget we're measuring Um, you know, from a whole body perspective and usually indirectly. You know, many of your listeners um, would know what a VO2 max test is, where we're trying to measure the maximal rate of oxygen uptake, um, perhaps on a treadmill and you've got sort of a gas mask on. That's an indirect measure. When we do these measurements in animals, we can measure them directly. So that's why there's interest there, but why we never show anything at the moment in, in, in athletes. So there is a theory that oestrogen increases um, fat utilisation, for instance. So you might use um, more fat um, when oestrogen is high. So don't forget oestrogen is high right before ovulation and it's also elevated in the mid-luteal phase. So um, a lot of the listeners may have read that in the luteal phase, you're more likely to use fat as an energy source. Now, does that mean, one, that you should consume more carbohydrate? Or two, does it mean you're more effective at burning fat and so you're sparing your carbohydrate? And that's a good thing. We actually don't really know the answer to that. Um, and it largely depends on what the exercise intensity um, is so the, the theory that estrogen um, suppresses glucose production and therefore glucose utilization um, and then that shifts towards greater oxidation of fats might only be relevant when exercise intensity is above anaerobic threshold for instance so yep. about 55 percent of your vo2 peak Um, and maybe even higher, 65% in highly trained athletes. And it might only be relevant as well when athletes are in that fasted state. As soon as you have a positive nutritional state, and I would hope that all your listeners and athletes are in that positive nutritional state, particularly when they're going to perform. So that means that they, uh, you know, have had a carbohydrate meal before their event, then any effect of estrogen or progesterone is probably negated. Mm. In other words, the effect of consuming the carbohydrate is far greater or has a much bigger influence than the sex hormone effect. That is exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's essentially negligible Mm. uh, unless you set up the experiment where the athletes are fasted uh, and you're at a particular exercise intensity and you might show something, but in high estrogen states, yes, you burn more fat. Mm. And so it sounds like, uh, as you mentioned, obviously you can measure it directly in animals and you see an effect, but when you try to indirectly measure it in humans, you don't. Is that because the effect is probably too small that we don't have the precision to measure it with those indirect methods? 
Yeah, it may mean that our methods are not sensitive enough. Mm. Um, we do see we, we, we do see an effect when we um, have athletes in a fasted state and the intensity of the exercise is high enough, but that's generally not um, how our athletes are performing. Mm. They're usually performing when they've had a high-carbohydrate meal and, as you say, that effect is far greater than any fluctuation mm. or slight change in estrogen and progesterone concentration. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's look at, um, I guess, more the sort of digestion and absorption of nutrients now and whether um, changes over the cycle will influence potentially the absorption of nutrients and therefore how much we need to consume of those. So thinking about things like I know, calcium or iron or protein, does a menstrual cycle and, and you know the estrogen and progesterone influence the digestion and absorption of those as far as we know? Yeah, so estrogen... Um certainly helps with the absorption of calcium um, and that's why um, athletes in an amenorrheic state uh, potentially have higher incidence of stress fracture injury Mm. Um, so that lowered calcium absorption um, has a direct effect on bone health Um, so that's that's really important Um, in terms of across the menstrual cycle when athletes have a normal menstrual cycle they're certainly changes um, in uh, calcium uptake um, and things like vitamin D as well as uh, iron deficiency across across menstrual cycle, particularly in menstruation. Um, but they're but they're fluctuating. So again, you don't particularly look at a specific phase and say, oh low calcium, low vitamin D. What you're doing I, I guess is um, assessing the athlete as a whole, um, do they have sufficient calcium and vitamin D uh, on average across the menstrual cycle to support good bone health? Um, So, yeah, it definitely fluctuates, uh, serum calcium, vitamin D um, and iron, Uh, but the whole idea is to ensure that on average the athlete has enough to support good bone health. Mm. Okay. So it sounds like people don't need to go out and, you know, consume more calcium at certain times of a cycle than others or anything like that. I would say um, the answer would be to uh, consume good amounts of calcium, uh, get some vitamin D, whether that be through sunshine or through diet um, and iron right across the menstrual cycle. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, let's talk a little bit about hydration now. And this is, I guess, one of the areas that's potentially been a little bit more controversial uh, as it relates to the menstrual cycle. Uh, Is it correct that your blood volume and or the the total amount of water in your body changes across the cycle due to the the fluctuations um, in those sex-specific hormones? And if so, like what's what's going on there? Yeah, it's a a really interesting one and um, people will comment on whether they feel like they're retaining fluid, um, particularly in that luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. And actually that's probably true that there is some change in fluid dynamics and a, and a buildup of interstitial fluid during the luteal phase. And that actually then has effect on plasma volume and decreases plasma volume. And if measured, uh, might indicate dehydration. Now that may not be the case and um, it is influenced by how much uh, uh, beverage an athlete might might take on board. So it's a little bit 
complex to answer that question, but certainly there is some fluid retention. Mm. I guess the interesting thing is the interaction between, um, you know, fluid dynamics across the menstrual cycle and also um, thermoregulation and how that changes across the menstrual cycle. So if we've got some, uh, you know, a buildup of interstitial fluid in the luteal phase and we've got a higher core body temperature during the luteal phase, do those things accumulate uh, to then put us at a higher risk of dehydration? Don't know if we know the answer to that, but certainly the theory is there. Um, and so athletes should be thinking about that right across their menstrual cycle phase, um, but particularly in the luteal phase. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds like we're certainly not at the stage of being able to make clear recommendations around how hydration should be altered or you should have a specific strategy at different times with, across a menstrual cycle. Yeah, I, I don't think saying um, consume 500 mils more mils of of water or um, sports drink um, would necessarily change hydration status across the menstrual cycle. Um, Again, athletes should be well hydrated and that should override any change in uh, fluctuating sex hormones. Yeah, okay. Now, there's obviously a lot of different, and you mentioned before, sort of about tracking or keeping a record of menstrual cycle. There's a lot of apps that you can use now to sort of monitor and, and make a record of um, of a cycle, uh, or you could do it, you know, pen and paper or just in notes on your phone or something like that. Um, do you see value for the majority of people doing that, or do you think that um, there's only specific circumstances where there's sort of value in, in tracking a cycle? I think for athletes, um, it's certainly worth tracking a menstrual cycle um, for six months mm-hmm. uh, at least um, to, to confirm a normal menstrual cycle or to gain a better understanding of positive and negative symptoms, uh, certainly. And that might not just include symptoms, but performances and training adaptations. So there's, there's definitely some positives. Um, you've got to make sure that it doesn't become obsessive and that athletes don't prioritise menstrual cycle phase over good nutrition and good training practice. Um, And the other thing is, if we ask too many questions every day, it becomes a little bit monotonous and athletes don't then necessarily give a true um, response, if you like. So coaches have got to be really aware of how much they're asking athletes and what feedback they give to athletes. So if you're going to collect that data, what are you actually going to do with it? We don't just collect data for the sake of it. Um, If it is an athlete group and you are a coach, what if you do find that a group of athletes don't have a normal menstrual cycle? Whose responsibility is it then um, to go on and um, talk to the athletes or refer them to the appropriate medical practitioner. So you have to think about all those things before we start collecting. Um, as an individual athlete, absolutely, I think there's some some really good benefits in better understanding your own menstrual cycle, but then also recognising when it's not normal that you will go and get it checked out. Yep. Okay. And obviously, you know, different apps will have different thing, you know, data points, I guess, that you can capture. If someone's just doing it freehand or as i said like the notes in their phone or something what are the sort of bits of information that you would encourage people to to make note of uh i would um ask them what their priorities were um and so for 
optimal adaptation to training. We need good sleep, we need good nutrition, and we need good training practices. So there are the they're the three things that I would be tracking alongside menstrual cycle. We know that uh, sleep quality changes across menstrual cycle and with menstrual disturbance. So we should be asking the quality of sleep alongside menstrual cycle. We should be asking what athletes are eating alongside menstrual cycle um, and also what their fatigue levels are like. Um, and, and of course, those positive symptoms as well. Um, how are they responding to training? What's their mood like? Um, do they notice anything else changing? Yep. Okay. Now that makes sense. And in terms of the cycle itself, just the, the day that the period starts? Yeah, absolutely. So day one of uh, your period uh, and then, you know, track that every single, every month for about six months mm. um, and see if you get a normal pattern. Yep. Okay. Now that makes sense. Okay, and now obviously we've discussed all these aspects for someone that, that does have a cycle. Um, for those who don't have a regular cycle, should they be doing anything differently? Like if you have amenorrhea, for example, would any of these things that we've discussed sort of you, you take a different approach or not really? Yeah, I think if an athlete recognises that they have amenorrhea, uh, the first thing would be to see a medical practitioner and or a dietitian to get some um, advice on that. Um, there are going to be different nutritional requirements, um, but also uh, it'd be important to track bone health, for instance. Um, again, there's a reason why you lose your menstrual period and it's usually to support other systems of the body when there's not enough energy, but it also could mean that there's an underlying health condition that needs to be checked out. So rather than try and manage the situation, we'll try to rectify the situation um, by going to the correct uh, experts. Yep, yep, definitely. And the other group that we haven't really discussed at all at the moment uh, and represents a, a fairly large chunk of female athletes would be people that are using various types of hormonal contraceptives. Um, so how do those sort of synthetic hormonal contraceptives then alter all the things that we've just discussed in terms of, you know, whether it's fueling or nutrient needs, um, hydration, body temperature, all of those sorts of things? Yeah, I guess understanding what a, what a contraceptive is, is important. So there's probably about six or seven different types of um, mm. hormonal contraceptives, some which deliver synthetic estrogen and progesterone and suppress naturally occurring estrogen and progesterone. So that is one major effect. Um, the others deliver progesterone only. So there's no synthetic estrogen. Um, and some deliver sex hormones locally. So an interuterine device, a Mirena, for instance, delivers those sex hormones locally in the uterus. Um, so the way they affect physiologies very different. Um, an oral contraceptive pill um, generally has both synthetic estrogen and progesterone, um, but there's in Australia about 35 different types. So the physiological effect of all these different hormonal contraceptives uh, are, are broad and it really depends on what each one. So there can be an effect of suppressing endogenous hormones and that would be like you're in the follicular stage all the time mm -hmm. but you can't discount the effect of this enormous delivery of synthetic estrogen and progesterone as well and while a lot of the effect is similar 
uh, to endogenous estrogen and progesterone, we found that um, the administration of oral contraceptives do have uh, different physiological effects. For instance, um, women who take oral contraception uh, are more likely to get delayed onset muscle soreness and more muscle damage after unaccustomed exercise or eccentric exercise as compared to women who are naturally cycling. Mm. We also know that core body temperature is elevated up to about half a degree in women who are taking oral contraception. So that might have an effect on um, how the body regulates temperature during exercise and the heat. And that might be relevant for some of your endurance athletes that are listening. We don't know if it affects performance, but we definitely know that it increases uh, blood flow to the skin, which means it's not delivering blood to the muscles where you need it. So it may, we don't know, but it may result in premature fatigue. Mm, okay. And are you aware of any sort of practices of people, uh, you know, female athletes or, or coaches that work with female athletes deliberately either using or withholding um, contraceptives because of any sort of theoretical effects on physiology or performance? Yeah, I mean, the second highest reason for um, taking or administering hormonal contraception in an athlete is to uh, manipulate their cycle. Mm. Um, and that, that's absolutely fair enough, particularly in those experiencing menstrual dysfunction. Um, and then there are athletes that won't take hormonal contraception because they believe that it decreases their endurance performance. Um, and there's uh, two high-quality studies that have shown that. Um, that there's a 10% decrease on average in VO2 peak. Um, and that was on a, in an oral contraceptive, it's called a second generation oral contraceptive. And we won't get into the detail of that, but there is some evidence showing that performance changes depending on the uh, event in women who take oral contraception. So again, definitely worth uh, tracking that. I guess the problem is a lot of athletes go on oral contraception when they're 16 and 17 years old for contraceptive reasons, mm. don't really understand how it changes their physiology or if it's or if it's changed their performance. Um, if it's used to dampen some of those menstrual symptoms, might absolutely be worth, um, you know, administering hormonal contraception in some athletes. Having said that, about 59% of female athletes, elite female athletes in Australia take some form of hormonal contraception. Definitely depends on the type of sport or event, but in general, across the board, in terms of Olympic sports, over 50% of athletes take some form of hormonal contraception. Definitely. Okay, and if someone is wanting to, you know, use that manipulation of the cycle with a hormonal contraceptive, that's probably something they need to do with a medical practitioner who can supervise that and advise on it, I would assume. Without doubt, they're um, prescriptive medication. Mm. Um, and so in, in any instance, a medical practitioner needs to be involved. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and just to finish up with anything that we've sort of missed along the way that you think is important to note about the effect of the menstrual cycle on female athletes, I guess particularly in terms of nutrition, but I guess you know more broadly maybe in terms of physiology as well. Yeah, look, I think um, we definitely touched on it, but I think understanding how menstrual cycle can affect things like bone mineral density and have an effect on reoccurring injury like stress fracture is something to really consider. Being amenorrheic is not, uh, you know, getting a stamp of approval or having a badge. It actually puts your performance 
and your health at risk. So I just wanted to um, you know, reiterate that point that uh, a normal menstrual cycle uh, is key to not only health, but absolutely to your performance as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And we've actually done a previous episode with Margot Rogers looking at, at this side of things as well. Yeah, excellent. Cool. I'm going to hand over to Steph to finish off with the bonus round now. Awesome. This is the fun part where our listeners get to uh, learn a bit more about you, Claire, right. other, other than being the strongest um, Australian uh, woman. <laughs> um, if you could go back to the end of high school and start again down a completely different career path, uh, what would it be? Um, politics. I think um, I just I just need people to take a little bit more personal responsibility for things, um, yep. and, I, and I reckon I could convince a few people. Mm. Well, I mean, you can still do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. I do. Offend yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> um, Favorite place to escape um, from work? Yeah, definitely on a hike. Um, pack yep. on the back, tent in the pack, um, yeah, in the bush, in the Aussie bush somewhere, definitely hiking. Nice. Um, and what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet had the chance? Um, it's a hard question because I'm getting a bit older. I absolutely love the look of hurling. looks absolutely oh, amazing, but I would really? be absolutely too scared to try that now. Um, yep. Skeleton looks absolutely yes. exhilarating but I'd yes. be absolutely too scared to try that now yeah um, I think to be honest I have tried most sports I actually can't think of one that I haven't tried not always in competition but I've have you done bobsledding no all, all that you know all that bobsled skeleton yeah. you know yeah I'd absolutely love to do it but yeah. yeah too scared now too old yeah yeah um favorite moment from the um Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics um, I think it's got to be a tie between Jess Fox in yep. the canoe and Maddie Di Rosario in the T54 marathon. They're both mm. incredible athletes. They're both Griffith students. And, uh, yeah, we, we couldn't be more proud of those two two athletes. Amazing. Yeah. I, I saw some statistics, some outrageous percentage of Olympians come from Griffith. Like it's just it dwarfs oh. every other university. I'm not sure what it is. You'd probably know the figures, Claire. Yeah, I think... Um, Almost ten percent of the Australian team <laughs> that went to the Olympics come from Griffith. Um, wow. It's a hu huge amount, and if we were a country, I believe we would have come eleventh or something on the tally. Yeah, medal tally. Outrageous. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what are you most looking forward to in two thousand and twenty-two? Apart from doing a podcast with Alan and I. Well, that's done. So I yeah. guess looking forward, um, it's got to be international travel. See some colleagues yeah. overseas and um, yeah. get back to a normal life. I think everyone's looking forward to that and uh, kissing COVID goodbye. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, this is going to be. Yeah, I think. Um, very popular um, with with our listeners. I know, yes, yeah, some of the girls I run with um, will find it very valuable and, and practical information. So thanks so much for your time. Yes, my absolute pleasure. It's been uh, fantastic. 
that was great. Um, thank you again to Claire so much for her time. Super lucky to, to have her. Um, and now I'm going to hand it over to Alan to give his famous summary. All right. So our question, just as a reminder, do nutrition needs of female athletes change across the menstrual cycle? And I think I can summarise this one in one word, Steph. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think that's pretty much the takeaway. We can end the podcast right now. Um, but, you know, as Claire talked about, um, there is some, I guess, theoretical reasons why nutrition needs might change over the menstrual cycle. A lot of those haven't been studied or studied very well. And so we don't have great answers to those. So at this stage, you know, while there might be a theoretical rationale for them, there's not evidence to say yes that definitely is a need or no it isn't so at this stage we can't really make any specific recommendations to that effect mm -hmm. and then other factors like you know carbohydrate versus fat use yes it changes over the cycle yes you can measure it but the difference is so tiny it's dwarfed by other factors like whether you ate before you trained or not and so really it's it's almost irrelevant um, in terms of what you actually do in the real world uh, I think the other the other couple of key messages, I guess, from Claire and, and probably takeaways for, for listeners. Firstly, it's not normal not to have a cycle or to have an irregular cycle. So if you're not sure because you haven't really sort of paid close attention to it, you can use various um, forms of tracking apps and things to track your cycle over time. And Claire talked about, I guess, the key things obviously will be the, the day of menstruation um, and then other um, sort of related factors, things like sleep quality, training quality and recovery, these kinds of things. And this might give you some idea whether, you know, for, for you as an individual, there is specific times within a cycle where, you know, certain factors like sleep and training performance and recovery and things do change. Um, although, as we said, the evidence is probably that over a whole group of people, there's probably not a consistent pattern one way or the other. But it also gives you an idea of how far apart a cycle is, whether it's within that normal range of sort of every 21 to 35 days. If it's not, um, then, you know, seek advice around that. There's actually a really fantastic infographic that Claire was involved in developing and we'll put it up on social media, so at The Long Munch on both Instagram and Twitter. We'll probably put it on Facebook as well, um, which is actually called the Menstrual Categorization System. Uh, and it basically follows through, you know, are you taking contraceptive? If so, what type? If not? You follow that path uh, and then asks you know, about uh, how regular a cycle is, whether you're on contraceptive or not, um, and then sort of comes to certain points in that depending on which branch you follow where it actually recommends that you seek medical advice around that as well. So that's a fantastic resource, I think, for female athletes to have a look at. And obviously, as Claire said, you know, if you don't have a regular cycle, there are potential you know, long-term consequences of that in terms of things like bone health and and other factors as well, because it can be a, obviously a sign of low energy availability, but it's not the only reason that someone might have amenorrhea. And so you need to exclude those other medical causes as well. So don't just assume straight away that it is low energy availability, although it, it often is the case. Uh, we also mentioned at the top of the show, Steph, the AIS Female Athlete Health Initiative, and that's uh, something that Claire's also been a, a major contributor to uh, and really encourage female athletes listening to uh, have a look at the resources that are available on that website. So if you just Google AIS Female Athlete Health Initiative, you'll find it straight away. Um, there's a whole bunch of resources in there for female athletes themselves, 
and also a whole bunch of resources for coaches and other support staff and health professionals who work with female athletes. So the, the athlete-specific ones are as short as 10 minutes per module, so they're really quick and easy but give you a real wealth of information and they're really well put together. So mm. highly recommend that. And it's not just about menstrual cycle. Um, there's some around nutrition, some around energy availability, and some about a whole bunch of other um, women's health issues, you know, exercise during pregnancy and postpartum and, and all sorts of things. So really, really good resource that's only been up for probably about six months, I think, Steph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, relatively relatively new and updated. Yeah. So, yeah, so coming back to do needs change over a menstrual cycle, not really. Well, at least mm-hmm. not in a consistent way that we can generalise recommendations to say, you know, during this phase you should be doing this, but in this phase do something else. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah and I think yeah the key point is to um yeah monitor it so understanding where you sit and then yeah when you're monitoring your symptoms you can see like well do I feel you know not as good at a particular time and does that mean I just need to back off a little bit at this period of time yeah I think just some common sense sort of things to to think about as well and then um, as you highlighted, the, that myth that I know still some people think that, oh, I run, it's normal not to have my um, menstrual cycle. Well, that it, it's not normal. So mm. just highlighting that again. But, yeah, some, some great resources that we will add um, and we'll do our famous infographic to our. So hopefully people find, are finding those useful. But anyway, to add on top of this one, um, also super excited that we have um, another awesome guest on. Um, who's who have we got? Yeah, so it's going to be obviously episode thirty-two B next week. Same topic, uh, and our guest is fifteen hundred. Well, she's retired now. She's a coach, um, retired fifteen hundred meter runner Hilary Stellingworth. So. Mm-hmm. Some of you will recognise that name. She's actually the wife of Trent Stillingworth, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about data. But, you know, she's a very accomplished athlete herself, two-time Olympian in the 1500 um, in the London and Rio Olympic Games and now working as a track coach. So it'd be great to get her perspective both as a former athlete but but her coaching experience as well. Now, Steph, I wanted to check with you because I remember when we did the, the preview and we talked to about Trent coming on, you said, quote, you'll ping your pants about this one. Is that still the case here? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm okay. excited about having Hillary on as well. Yep. And like, yeah, we've read um, a fair bit about Hillary too with Trent's paper, case study paper on the body composition. So yeah, um, yeah I feel like we, we know her already. Through academic journals, yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely excited to meet Hillary. I'm, I'm continent. I don't know about you, but, (laughs) but yes, very excited to uh, chat to Hillary next week. (laughs) All right, awesome. Well, um, we will leave our our guests, and just a reminder that, um, yeah, please check us out at the Long Munch, and if you do find any of our um, episodes you know useful and you think it might be something that your friends or training buddies might benefit from please pass our link on to them and we'd love you to subscribe Uh, otherwise we will leave you in peace Hmm. see everyone next week see ya